All right, here we are gathered together, Garrett, Q, and we are continuing our series on apologies. Sorry, not sorry. So Garrett, Q, I want to know, who are you demanding an apology from this week? I know for me, I had a borderline personality disorder episode, uh, was in rare form, and then reached out to a bunch of my exes to try to relitigate our past relationships. Uh, so special shout out to my exes for picking up those calls, and the ones that didn't, uh, it's probably fine too. How about you? I think I'm in a weird position where apologies don't really matter to me insofar as the people don't matter to me. So I would just accept an apology from a bunch of the really racist things that happened, like, while I was a debater. Like, I'm part of the partner that I um, debated with my senior year, and um, my ex-boyfriend, who um, was implicated in a lot of really racist things that happened on our debate team. By really racist things, I mean holding a party called Soft A Saturday, where they um, explicitly um, use the N-word. Um, Wait, so I'm sorry, Soft Day Saturday, does this mean that this group of men is just waiting all week long to say the N-word, and they're like, oh, but I can't because it's Thursday? Absolutely, and the most ludicrous sort of idea I've ever heard of, it was when they hosted a party and decided to use the N-word as the entry point for the party, so to enter the party you had to say N-word with a hard R. What? Yeah. Um, All right, various bros of KU Debate, we are formally demanding an apology from you. Please uh, feel free to come on the pod and explain yourself. (laughs) And they can't. So I think I went through a lot of racial trauma on that team. Um, And I think that's a lot of stuff that I've had to unpack that um, foreshadowing what we're going to talk about today with The Bachelor was a very triggering, and I accept an apology for that as well. Good. Uh, you deserve one, in my opinion. Yeah. Garrett, how about you? Uh, I've had a lot of interactions with COVID deniers, and while a lot of them are probably just confused, misinformed people, I think we collectively as a society deserve apologies from every single person of wealth or uh, anyone famous who is contributing to lies about coronavirus, because that shit is fucked up. <laughs> Yes. Time to answer for your actions, everyone, this week on Affluenza. Welcome back to Affluenza, everybody. Today we are honored to have my friend Karam in the house. Karam is an educator, a scholar, and an all-around icon. She is a PhD candidate in African American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is also the national debate champion at the National Debate Tournament in 2018, which is the highest honor a debater can achieve. And she won that tournament all by herself with no help. So congratulations, Q. (laughs) That's an amazing feat. Uh, She's also a dear, dear friend of mine, and we are so excited to have her on the pod. Cool. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, both Sarah and Garrett, for having me. 
Yeah, so we are kicking off our discussion today about corporate apologies, and we're shifting into discussions of how media influencers and uh, icons really address race issues or fail to do so. So today we're going to start off by talking about Chris Harrison. And I've long suspected for years, as both of you know, that Chris Harrison is just a husk of a man that feels nothing inside and really takes a sick delight out of the ways that he manipulates people on The Bachelor. But uh, I don't know, Q, when did you start to suspect something wasn't quite right with uh, Chris Harrison? I mean, the thing is, is that Chris Harrison has consistently been so fucking boring that it's actually uncertain when I realized that he was very racist. But, you know, the reality is the structure of the show itself and the kind of love that he promoted and the kind of love that he accepted as reasonable has always been extremely racialized since the beginning of the show. Um, You know, his contributions are limited, which is why I don't think that there will be that large of an implication to his absence. But there was a huge impact of a presence of having this white white man validate all of these relationships, if that makes any sense. So I think that um, for me, it's always been very apparent, and I've watched The Bachelor for years, but it's always been very apparent that, you know, the black people who are on the show, Chris Harrison, um, addresses in a very culturally insensitive way. And that, you know, he never addresses the elephant in the room, which is race. And even when this season, um, when Matt first, Matt James first sits down with Chris Harrison and talks about being black, there was no conversation. There's no dialogue, no addressing um, what, you know, this new black lead just said. It was very quickly swept under the rug as, oh, that would be hard. And it's very obvious that the show and Chris Harrison as a host uh, refuse to force dialogue. As you see Tasha and other characters who are forcing dialogue in the show, um, Rachel Lindsay, it begs the question, why are we waiting for the black leads to lead a conversation that obviously should have been addressed 10 years ago? Yeah, I think that's so right. And one thing to keep in mind here is that When we talk about omission, you know, there can't really be an omission here because he is producing a narrative about interracial love. And so you have to grapple with those issues foundationally in whatever framework that you adopt to prove that story. And, you know, it's coming to light that Chris Harrison's framework and The Bachelor's framework for selling that story to Americans is deeply fucked up in a lot of ways. And they're uh, sort of willing to engage with that by, like, hiring a new black host for The Bachelor. But is that enough? What do we think? You know, for me, I would say absolutely not. It's not enough because the framework of the show would need to be maintained in order for it to stay the same show. And it's the framework of love proposed on The Bachelor that's really the problem. You know what I'm saying? Like the idea of um, this perfect upper class person finding love with someone who is also pretty perfect and has this perfect life. And, you know, you watch people on the show, anyone who's had a history of trauma has a really hard time with the show. Matt James himself had a really hard time with the show because of the lack of the presence of his father in his life. And you have to be this perfect nuclear family. And as we've learned over time, that nuclear family is established through white heteronormativity. So it's the structure of the show that's the problem. And so the more attention that we call to representation is important. Like Tasha, I have no doubt um, that she's going to do an amazing job and, you know, do a great job as a host. 
but it begs the question of the larger framework of the show and why we advocate for white love instead of black love. And I don't think there were many iterations of black love on the show as someone who studied black love. There were black people who were falling in love, um, but there weren't kind of more um, blackened interpretations of what love might look like, um, of not searching for um, the one um, to reproduce and live in a house and, you know, kind of have kids. And it was a very whitewashed interpretation of what love can be. Yeah. Presumably there's some sort of problems there too with the other motivations that people would have for going on the show and the other types of things that it upholds because, you know, people who are successful on the show become, you know, minor celebrities and the, the profit that they seek to gain through that process a lot of the time. Not that I want to focus too much on the contestants, but there's definitely this dynamic where the money that's involved and the fame that it's involved in potential future success also kind of taints it because anything that's involved in exploitation from a capitalist perspective is just going to compound the problems that are already there that you're talking about. Definitely see that. I could see that. I, I would say, though, that, you know, what things aren't implicated by societal status, you know, what relationship in, in our current, you know, American society is not implicated in some, like, why would you get married? Um, marriage is establishment, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Says my bridesmaid. <laughs> in slavery, and I'm not saying I'm not going to get married, so don't hold me to that. I just think that we have to question larger frameworks at hand and, like, Yes, it's true that the girls are famous from the show and the guys get famous from the show and become minor celebrities, so that does implicate why people want to be in a relationship. But the same is true for, you know, not the same, but the framework that people use to establish, like, you know, viability of a life partner um, in American society is still largely implicated by this capitalist framework of, you know, who can I get a house and become, you know, whatever with, um, have this, you know, American dream with, um, which is obviously extremely racialized and extremely, um, you know, implicated in capitalist assumptions about what life should look like, so. Yeah, uh, one thing that was really great for me to read on that is the Bell Hooks book that you got me all about love, so definitely recommend that for readers whose interest is piqued by this conversation. Um, but I do want to shift to talking about what the drama and the discourse is recently. So Q, tell us who Rachel Kirk Connell is and what people's problems are with her. So Rachel Kirk Connell is a woman who was on the show, um, I might say girl, um, <laughs> And I say that because as a woman, I think that there becomes responsibility for one's actions. And I think that that's something that Rachel has refused to do throughout time and has uh, relied on this notion of white innocence. But um, in order to evade some of the um, racist history that she has um, and history, I use, um, you know, we know history is the present. Um, and so begs a lot of questions of like how she presents herself because she presents herself as extremely white, but our visual interpretation of her uh, might not be that she's the same as, I don't know, Heather. Right. It's not immediately clear um, what her ethnicity is. And like, I think that that goes a long way when you're talking about a black man trying to find a relationship. He stated at the beginning of the show that he was worried about people's expectations of him um, and worried about being the first black bachelor. 
um, when you have someone presenting in a certain way and you have this like random white woman um, who comes on the show and you're forced to really reconcile with like, do I want the American dream or do I want a more um, substantial kind of love, someone who can challenge me? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like she wasn't doing the work of being an ally to prove that this sort of interracial relationship would be anything other than like physical attraction and wanting societal status. Racist things came out about her, um, about her um, past going to parties, that were Annabellum themed. Um, wait, 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 unpack that for me. An Annabellum themed party? What does that involve? Yeah, I don't know. I've never been to one. Sadly, <laughs> I haven't been invited. Shocker. But um, I think that the premise is the Annabellum era during slavery, plantations, the idea of extreme wealth, of celebrating gowns and parties, and, you know, being the literal idea of white femininity where it emerged, you know, yeah. in the Antebellum South. They're celebrating. Um, and so her, her response to that is that she didn't know what she was doing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what the fuck did you think you were doing? Um, you showed up to a party in dresses from the South on a plantation. And you're telling me you had no idea what you were doing? Either the system has failed monumentally and you're responsible for rebuilding it because of your participation. Or you did have an idea of what you're doing and your refusal to be accountable for what you did is truly fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. And Q, I, I was thinking maybe we could take a look at some clips from Chris Harrison's interview with Rachel Lindsay, uh, because that's where things start really kicking off. Because Rachel's asking some serious questions about his role in uh, vetting the other Rachel, the antebellum South Georgia Rachel. And so let's listen to what Chris Harrison has to say in defense. What are your thoughts about Rachel Kirkinell and the allegations attached to her? A couple of things. First and foremost, I don't know. Um, I haven't talked to Rachel about it. And, and this is, again, where we all need to have a little grace, a little understanding, a little compassion, because I've seen some stuff online. Again, this judge, jury, executioner thing. Oh, actually, that's interesting, Chris Harrison, because there is no judge, jury, or executioner involved in Bachelor Nation Twitter discourse, and people are just <laughs> reacting to uh, what you have covered up. So, hot take that we need to have compassion and empathy from Chris Harrison. I think that the demand of empathy and responses that are compassionate from Black people is a consistent use of you know, black bodies as a vehicle for white imaginations and for white futurity, right? That this notion that her future is going to be implicated and we need to be compassionate and give her more time to respond um, to Chris Harrison, you know, ultimately saying that he can't know if an antebellum party is racist until he hears her response, <laughs> um, assumes some level of, you know, fragility and an assumption of innocence on part of white counterparts that are never afforded to black people. So, the idea that she can commit, you know, ultimately, if we're talking about a judge executioner situation, the fact that she can commit a crime and is presumed innocent um, is ultimately, historically, you know, a trope allowed to white people and white women in particular. And the demand that black people give more of their empathy and more of their time to her experience, um, even though there is no way an antebellum party could not be racist, is just insane to me. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by white futurity and how someone like Brock Turner might get access to it when there actually is a judge and jury? 
Um, yeah, I, mean, I would say that, you know, ultimately that um, I think this notion of white futurity is the idea of seeing, um, having, for me, in my work, I guess, white futurity means this possibility at a different future, uh, this possibility that's grounded in anti-black, you know, disallowance of a future. So, you know, someone like Stephen Dillon will talk about how time doesn't pass for black people it accumulates um how we went from slavery to jim crow to the prison industrial complex and while the material manifestations of anti-blackness have certainly changed that it's impossible to read that change as progress and i think that futurity um sort of white futurity is this notion of this linear notion of time of progress the possibility for uh, a future um that isn't implicated by mistakes or miscomings or um, other things that are not afforded to African-Americans. So I think that Chris Harrison is totally caught up in this narrative of futurity because I have to imagine that the way he thinks about it is like, oh, a black bachelor wouldn't have flown in season five, but here I am, Chris Harrison, like leading the foray and like healing the race divide in America by showing people interracial love. And that is just such a, it's an engagement with those issues that centers himself, but doesn't actually deeply engage with any of the like relevant parties that he claims to be representing or helping yeah and i think another way that futurity is sort of represented through chris harrison and white futurity in particular is this notion that you know ultimately we can't know what the future holds because she she wasn't implicated um in her past statements like that she didn't know what she was doing when she did it makes her innocent and that, you know, time doesn't work that way. You know, he, he goes on to say later in the interview, which I'm sure we'll listen to, that, you know, this wouldn't have happened in 2000. I think he said 2008. You know what I'm saying? That, like, a lot of that having a black bachelor wouldn't have happened and other things wouldn't have happened. And so um, I think that, you know, the idea that racist shit that happened in the past is okay because, you know, it was history um, is bullshit, and I think only something that white people are afforded. Ultimately, black people are implicated for every single thing they do, and the past does not go away, and, you know, it's not, there's not a level of innocence assumed, and so those things are really not good. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's, let's hear some more from Chris. I would imagine, Chris, that you would be so enraged that someone is calling you something that's not true or, or you know, using an adjective on you that's not necessarily true, that you would write, speak out, say something. And I think that's if, more where no, people if, are... Yes and no, though. Yes and no. And, and you get this, too. I get this a lot. People drag me all the time. People troll me all the time. They do. And you know what's funny? I get trolled. I get trolled on both sides. Hollywood elite. Hollywood liberal. You're a, you're, a, you're a Trumper. You're a conservative. I honestly get 50-50 trolled on how bad I am on both sides of the aisle. Which Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do we Bro, think about this? If you get 50-50 trolled from both sides of the aisle, then like maybe people have a problem with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe everyone can simply agree that you're a dumbass. <laughs> Yeah, like, maybe you have no political convictions and, like, honestly are kind of a dick. And, like, the other thing is that, you know, the world's tiniest violin is playing for you, Chris Harrison. Like, <laughs> you get trolled on the internet while making literal, like, shit tons of money. Um, and it's not the same thing as a contestant on the show um, 
she's not being trolled. This isn't fucking trolls. This is her racist legacy coming out and being opened up. So the idea that he's equating it to trolling is just insane. Um, you know, he gets trolled from both sides of the aisle. There shouldn't be both sides of the aisle in terms of, you know, an antebellum party. That should be something that is strictly wrong. And so when he equates those things, again, he's lessening the implication of what Rachel Coconnell did. He's lessening the allegation and, again, assuming innocence on part of her. Absolutely. There's one more clip that I want to play on this video. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about his sort of internal narrative of healing the race divide. Let's listen. So when you talk about speaking out or whatever, you know, people look at this as if we're watching this live news story. And you're right. It has been six weeks. And it's going to play out even longer as long as Rachel is on the show. And, and that, I think, is important for people to watch this play out, because where is the narrative of her falling in love with Matt? And where is that in this social conversation we're having? And I love that you and I can have these conversations. You and I have these conversations all the time. And I love that <laughs> we can debate and talk back and forth. All right. So let's cut him off from gaslighting Rachel Lindsay any further. Uh, Q, what's your reaction? Yeah, fuck, fuck that so much. Like, I think that that is extremely problematic like i'll begin with where he ends like you know it's the black it's the white teacher calling out the black student in the middle of class um and asking them how they feel about slavery and racial issues right uh, of course rachel um you know she's not she's now not allowed to say actually i don't feel we've had a proper dialogue and i don't think that you've addressed some of my concerns and i don't think that you've ever been responsible for the racist legacy of that show. And I think that, you know, um, he, you know, I have a black friend sounds quite familiar to what he is saying, which is like, you know, no, I haven't released a statement about a literal antebellum party, but you know, I can talk to you girl about it because you're one of the safe black people and you're, mm. and you're implicated in this um, bachelor nation. So, you know, that if you say anything else, you're going to piss people off. And I think that that really has not been addressed in any of the conversations that I've seen about The Bachelor, which is how, um, you know, Rachel has her own bag to secure. Mm. And, you know, he's trying to, you know, she's actually the person who is doing the work that he's claiming to be doing of trying. And she's tried her damn hardest, you know, as an educated black woman who is being um, implicated through all of this shit. She's tried her hardest to really be, um, diplomatic about what's happening and kind of express it in a given way and i think that that's the problem in a lot of ways is that you know the responsibility that we put onto her um to 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 be responsible for everything and regarding racial kirkconnell that is absolutely bull honky the idea that you know he sorry what did you just say i just learned a new word bull honky yeah it's the idea that it's like not implicated that her racial legacy isn't implicated in their love story. The fact that ABC allows for Matt to continue falling in love full well knowing the racial history that she had and hadn't done a proper sweep of her fucking Twitter for dating the first black bachelor to see that she had gone to an antebellum party. And then when they figured out did not um, address the situation and that didn't implicate the love story, that's, insane um the fact of the matter is that matt didn't get his opportunity at love because those things were not addressed had those things been addressed as a part of the show and a form of racial reconciliation um 
maybe they could have fallen in love. I mean, I talked earlier about a racist history I had with my ex-boyfriend, and there was a lot of reconciliation. There were a lot of false promises about books that were going to be read and things that were going to be done in order to change um, the way that he was racist. But ultimately, I just think that, you know, the fact of a white person dating a black person and that interracial relationship never being addressed um, means that they never really had a love story to begin with because she doesn't understand math experience. She doesn't understand what he's doing. And then the idea that he is producing this love story is even more insane that, you know, we should be grateful that he allowed a black man to, you know, fall in love with a white woman and where's her story in all of this. Um, you know, she doesn't fucking need a story. You know, she, we need to actually exme that love story. Um, and if, he wants to address it if matt james wants to address it if he wants to be socially responsible for being in love with her which is again one of the huge labors that happens to black people which is now that you are responsible for your partner's racial history imagine the fucking pressure that he feels to now know you know if he dates rachel you know he's basically you know betrayed black people and more significantly shows his true colors and if he you know and, 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 and if he did fall in love with her, fuck the show for putting him in that situation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I feel like I finally have a pretty clear, uh, relatively clear understanding of what the controversy actually is because I do not watch The Bachelor. I gave up on it years ago after getting frustrated with the way that it legislates when people are allowed to have sex in the production of this television show. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the so I haven't even come directly into contact with this particular controversy. And now that I have a, a picture of it, I really think we need to take a moment to hear at least some of his apology and, and decide what we think of it. Okay, so obviously everyone's mad at his interaction with Rachel Lindsay where he talks down to her and gaslights her, as we all heard and saw, and just like talks about how he's like the change and he's getting trolled on both sides. So Chris Harrison uh, goes on to formally apologize and let's hear that apology now. I made a mistake and I own that. I believe that mistake doesn't reflect who I am or what I stand for. I am committed to the progress, not just for myself, also for the franchise. I am saddened and shocked. Yeah, saddened and shocked, personally feels very responsible, has been kicked off the show, but now he's really worried about the future of the franchise. At how insensitive I was in that interview with Rachel Lindsay. And I didn't speak from my heart. And that is to say I stand against all forms of racism. And I am deeply (laughs) sorry. I'm sorry to Rachel. Can you tell us why you are cracking up right now? Yeah, uh, I just think that this is the, like, you know, most least accountable apology I've ever heard. The idea that racism didn't come from his heart and that his heart is true and that ultimately, you know, it was a mistake again, is refusing actual accountability for a racist framework and racist ideology that someone has. And I think true accountability and true apologies say, you know what, I did, you know, I held this view of Rachel Kukano and I presumed innocence on part of her. And I think that that was really problematic and more significantly how I treated Rachel Lindsay and that conversation was extremely problematic or, you know, racist. And I think that, you know, I need to be held accountable for that. 
if that means that the future of the show goes on without me, that's a consequence that I'm going to have to accept. And Bachelor Nation should continue to support Tasha and the new host of The Bachelor, right? He still has his interests at heart. It's still an apology um, for his own production and for his own, you know, um, elevation. And so, again, it's not accepting responsibility for one's actions. It's saying, um, please don't hold me accountable for my actions. It wasn't from the heart, so that means we're all going to forgive him immediately because there was really no wrong in the first place, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went to Saucy Saturday and I said nigger, but it wasn't from the heart. You know, it wasn't from the heart, so ultimately those things can't be implicated. Well, it fucking hurts other people's heart. It hurt Rachel Lindsay's heart. Hearing what you have to say is pretty soul-crushing and soul-destroying for a bunch of black people. So the idea that because it didn't come from the heart, it doesn't matter, or that you get a pass, is bullshit. If, if a single black man uh, or black woman said something so racially insensitive, they would have been canceled and, you know, Ben Carson's out of the world. And the idea that you, you know, when the fuck does he ever act with heart in the show? Like, what is the persona of Chris Harrison that we're supposed to know about his true feelings about racial injustice in society? Because he doesn't speak out about any of it. He doesn't speak out about BLM. The fact that people think that he's a fucking Trumper, like, those things show that his political convictions and his quote-unquote heart aren't necessarily aligned with racial justice. So I'm unsure why I should trust it. (laughs) Speak on it. (laughs) That is right. Well, can you save it? Let's go. I'm sorry to the black community. I am not a victim here. I made a mistake and I own that. Racism, oppression, these are big dynamic problems and they take serious work and I am committed to that work. So you are the right person to lead this franchise into the future you feel. I plan to be back and I want to be back. This interview is not the finish line. There is much more work to be done, and I am excited to be a part of that change. Something that was... (laughs) Okay, that didn't make any sense. (laughs) Like, there are some parts of that where he's saying, like, kind of the right thing, you know, that he's committed to being part of the work that makes change happen. And I can appreciate that sentiment on some level, but the fact that he would talk about that and talk about accountability and just somehow remove himself from implication throughout it, and then at the end, the part where he's really committed to getting back on the show, (laughs) if he gets back on the show, isn't he replacing the person who's replacing him who is not white? Like, isn't that a problem? Of course. He's doing the work by removing the black person who is, like, who is, you know, now hosting the show, um, which would be Keisha. And, yeah, and Emmanuel replaces Chris Harrison on the show. And ultimately, what that implicates is everyone's ability to, you know, uh, that's just one thing. The fact that the franchise puts a black man on the show because Chris Harrison did something racially insensitive to save the show, right? Like, this is the most racialized capitalist bullshit I've ever heard of. The idea that diversity and representation will replace um, the structural frameworks that make the show violent is really fucked up. And we do see that, actually, you know, as a black person, he does feel socially responsible. And as a result of that, he does dive a little bit deeper into some of these conversations about race. And I think that, you know, Chris Harrison doesn't do that work. Again, when Matt James reveals that he is the first black bachelor and the pressure he feels, um, Chris Harrison is not doing the work. 
he's never done the work in the show um, for racial justice. He didn't do it for Rachel Lindsay, who is his quote unquote best friend. You know, right. ultimately, he hasn't been doing that work ever. And then the idea that he says, I it was a mistake and I'm holding myself accountable. Yeah, when you say something like it was a mistake or a mishap, and right, it assumes innocence on part of the person who did it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that isn't being held accountable. That's the opposite of being held accountable and, and saying that you're not the victim. It was a mistake, but I'm not a victim. I'm just being kicked off of my show, even though I just made a mistake. Um, that's bullshit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, uh, before we take a break here, the last thing I want to ask you about this We've been talking about how racial capitalism really perverts the love story that The Bachelor tries to produce. So, Q, if you had your own love show uh, where you just, like, wanted to show us black love, what would that look like? Or is it even possible in our current society? No, I I honestly would say I would never produce that show. I think that ultimately um, our society and the fetishization of black love and of black... um, the possibilities of intra-racial relationships or relationships between black people would become um, immediately commodified and pathologized um, by white America. And so the idea that, you know, you, you get a sneak peek into blackness by watching an ABC show is probably unlikely um, and problematic uh, as a manifestation. So it's not a show that I would produce, but, you know, if I were to be on a love show personally, um, I would want one similar to Love Island. I think the availability and agency of choice is like very important. I think it's still extremely racialized. Um, and I think that um, it allows for more people to be accountable for their desirability politics and what they consider desirable and why they don't consider other people desirable. Um, and the idea of having one black man date like, you know, 20 white girls and five black women puts everyone in an extremely awkward situation where, you know, he feels racially responsible. I think all love shows are going to be implicated by that, though, right? Like this idea that you feel racially responsible to find someone who is not the white um, person because you're trying to black marriages. Right now, I am, you know, writing about black marriages and black marriages have historically and consistently been about uplifting the race, right? Like producing this notion of um, a white uh, nuclear family um, to uplift the race, to show that possible, that, that, you know, they are not, that African-Americans are not going to, um, that they are capable of maintaining um, sort of what American democracy is meant to look like. And so this idea of racial uplift, the idea of respectability politics, the idea of black love that is approachable, that is understandable and makes sense to white people is really interesting because a lot of the experiences that black people have are far removed from white American society, right? So it is totally possible and plausible that you fall in love with someone because they understand your experience and they can empathize with your experience. As we saw through the show with Bree, um, he sort of falls in love with her because, you know, she does have a past that is similar, similarly traumatic to his. And racial trauma is a huge thing. So when addressing an interracial relationship, those things have to be spoken about before someone can actually say they're in love. Um, they, um, you know, again, read that Bell Hooks book all about love. Um, the idea that you can love someone um, but still be abusive to them, still be harmful to them, 
is not aligned with true love, right? That is not aligned with what love means as a social framework and an idiom, and we need to teach. So if I did host a show, um, it would probably be about what love is and, um, you know, kind of forcing people, like couples therapy. There was a show that was produced that... Oh, I um, know. We watched it together. (laughs) Yeah, um, about, uh, like, people's relationships. And I I would want, like, a deep therapy session between interracial and uh, intraracial relationships talking about the ways that trauma sort of um, implicates the possibilities for those relationships. Um, Coming from previous relationships, particularly my long-term partner that I thought that, you know, ultimately I was going to have a future with, I think a lot of things implicated the possibility of that future before I had even recognized it, right? Like in a lot of ways, I was trying to turn myself into like a white Midwestern woman and trying to be perfect. And that wasn't even something he was asking of me. That was pressure I was putting on myself um, due to societal, you know, structural standards. And so I think that, you know, ultimately these relationships, I think it's really hard to watch a show like this um, because, there's a lot that's not being said that a critical eye can see. And I think that's why The Bachelor is really hard. Even watching the first Black Bachelor was really hard for a lot of Black people to get behind because there's so much that's going unsaid or unspoken um, that is, you know, narrating the show. And another book I'll shout out is, um, you know, Afro-Pessimism by um, one of my mentors and someone who's going to be on my committee, Frank Wilderson. And ultimately, what he talks about are these racial antagonisms that pre-structure the possibility of conversations. And so ultimately, when we see a white person dating a black person, um, we already have these assumed frameworks and these assumed ideologies of what that means and looks like. And so, you know, there's a racial animus that's narrating the show without being spoken, right, that these white people... And I'd love to hear y'all's opinions on that. But, you know, ultimately when watching the show and you see someone um, say that they feel conflicted before the show has even began, right, that they feel conflicted of social responsibilities of who they're supposed to marry and who they're supposed to be with and what kind of love is allowed for them, then you know that that's going to be the narration of the entire fucking show is that racial animus of him feeling uncomfortable with probably finding white women more desirable and you know trying to reconcile with that and you know i i struggle with that as well so this is no hate on matt james you know what i'm saying like this notion of finding a relationship that's safe um it's not safe to be in an interracial relationship one could argue it's not safe to be in an interracial relationship but you know the idea of presumed safety of the possibility of futurity as we get back to that theme that we talked about before the notion that the possibility of a, a better future for yourself um, and better being safer um, then you know that those things are implicated so that's what I would say I'd, I'd have a therapy love show yeah that sounds great and I can't wait to watch it and I definitely can understand and think about the things that you're telling us because even though the racial antagonisms on Love Island, for example, which we love in this house. We're Love Island fans, let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> the, the racial antagonisms on Love Island are there, but they're not really explicitly discussed most of the time. And so we take notice when, you know, like the dark skin.
dark-skinned women are getting less dates and getting picked less often even though they're beautiful and you know that's something that's like so blatant it's obvious to even us so thank you for helping us further decode some of oh yeah for sure and to be clear none of us are saying that like love island is racially progressive i think that it just makes it more readily apparent like who is not being chosen and why yeah you know what i'm saying so I think that there's a possibility for more discourse surrounding it. Not that that discourse has existed um, yet. <laughs> I like this idea of, I don't know what you would call it in therapy, Love Island. <laughs> the, show, <laughs> the show that really engages in the therapeutic needs within a loving relationship would be really, really beneficial on a number of levels. But the one thing that comes out most strongly to me when I watch Love Island or, you know, bits and pieces of other shows that I've watched is that all of the contestants seem like they're just under an enormous amount of strain. And so regardless of what dynamics are going on, I just feel like these people need help sometimes. So if we had a show that was actually trying to help people, you could produce something really, really interesting with that. And I think that's a cool idea. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and like more wholesome than The Bachelor. <laughs> Which is not oh, saying yeah. much. It's a low bar. <laughs> Welcome back from our break. We are going to move from the realm of one white feminist, Chris Harrison, to another, Nicole Arbor. And do you remember Nicole Arbor, Q? Do you know who she is? I don't, actually. Yeah, um, I don't either. Yeah, she's super charming, and she actually became popular for the first time in... I believe 2014 when she published the video Dear Fat People, which we are going to sample briefly. Oh, good. Dear Fat People. Ah, some people are already really mad at this video. Okay, here she talks about fat shaming. What are you gonna do? Wait, what are you gonna chase me? Fat shaming is not a thing. Fat people made that up. That's a race card with no race. Yeah, but I couldn't fit into a store. That's Whoa. discrimination. Uh, no, that means you're too fat. You should stop eating. All right. Wouldn't she just like already be canceled yeah. from that? Yeah, you too fat, stop eating. Pretty indescribably bad already, but unfortunately it gets worse. Fat shaming. Who came up with that? That's fucking brilliant. Yes, shame people who have bad habits until they fucking stop. Fat shaming. If we offend you so much that you lose weight, lose, lose weight, I'm okay with that. You are killing yourself. Yeah. So this was posted in 2015, at which point it was already, like, not publicly okay to be talking about this. And she basically has her 15 minutes of being, like, a controversial skinny queen and uh, disappears forever as, like, the YouTube cycle goes. So then in 2018, Childish Gambino releases the music video for This Is America. And that is a cool video if you haven't seen it. And Q, what are your thoughts on the video as a scholar of Afro-pessimism? you know this is america is largely about the kind of violence that structures the american society without sounding too generic it's you know it's an art there's a lot of different interpretations that one can have of the video but at the core it's about anti-black violence yeah i really feel like you know as 
someone who interacted with that video right when it came out, I remember seeing a ton of different discourse, a lot of different interpretations of different sections of it, trying to interpret what the motives are, and then a lot of discourse about like the degree to which it was helpful in particular ways. But overall, it was just so rich and interesting that to me, it's 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 one of the most interesting and provocative and well crafted music videos that i've ever seen while at the same time not being an easy one to interact with yeah absolutely and we can argue about its meaning and people have at length but what you can't argue about is that this was a really culturally significant moment uh for the black community for black media and uh for you know non-black people who are learning to engage with that in potentially a new way so uh, Nicole Arbor uh, sees a chance for opportunity and clout here. And she's like, what if I take what Childish Gambino did and do like a remix that's about how hard women have it in America, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So like, without seeing the video or knowing anything about it, uh, is that a good idea? Probably not. Oh, I would say absolutely not. I mean, coming from a framework of Afro-pessimism, it's kind of my background. Just the idea that women, um, you know, women and, you know, gender are a social category. Um, Anti-blackness is a structural category. So um, taking something about anti-black violence and making something that Frank Wilderson calls a ruse of analogy, um, making an analogy to other types of suffering and assuming that those sufferings um, share or are brunt by the same experiences or structures is extremely violent in and of itself. So just taking something from black people, making it fungible, meaning making it, you know, capable of being appropriated and exported for other bodies is an extremely violent act. Um, before even seeing the video, I can say that taking something that is about anti-black violence and making it about a broad social category such as women um, is anti-black. So can I just check if I understand what you're saying? You're saying that transposing the analysis that goes into something like the music video, This This Is America, into a separate issue of uh, oppression creates a problem because the appropriation just doesn't work. The structure of the analysis is no longer going to work. And so you're oversimplifying the original analysis and doing violence to that analysis by oversimplifying it, just saying, like, this is fungible, this can move around, we can use this logic for anything, instead of looking at the specific ways that it's relevant to the topic that it's trying to deal with. Right, and, like, it's it's not the same the other way around, though. So if there was a video that was, like, about women and black people took it and did something to it, um, I'm, I'm arguing that there's sort of a larger structure or a structural antagonism of anti-blackness that sort of um, substantiates white women's claims for, you know, freedom. So just like during the civil rights movement, when white women clinged on to um, black people's hard work and labor in order to further their own agenda, that oftentimes when black people um, make certain protests that their means of protest get appropriated and commodified by white women in particular and ultimately silence the kind of revolutionary demands that are that are existent. So pretty much what you've said, but just want to remind everyone that it's not the same the other way around, right? Like had, had this happened in a white person, uh, black person taken something up by women's groups I don't think it would be the same problem. Okay. 
I hear you. I I just want to say I'm not super familiar with the argument that you're making right there, but I think I kind of see where you're coming from, and I'm hoping that this plays out a little bit, you know, when we get a little bit more into the details of what the actual product does. Or it might just be so dumb that it really simplifies (laughs) our conversation. Yeah, and I think that what's important to take away from this is that this is uh, an anti-capitalist critique that we're making about what Nicole Arbor is doing, but it is one that is very specific to the structure of anti-blackness itself, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess my critique would probably be more aligned with Afro-pessimism than anti-capitalism, though, like, you know, anti-capitalism is a modality of anti-blackness. I ultimately think that, like, any analysis of class without being racialized is, like, pretty stupid. Um, so sure. in that, like, fundamentally, I'm making, like, an Afro-pessimist critique. Great. All right. So we have our frameworks. We have our presumptions laid out. Let's see what Nicole Arbor does. And I want you to, like, see her because this is visual as well as auditory. I would also just say, if anyone hasn't seen the original This Is America video, please watch that. Like, pause instead. this video. Yeah. Well, yeah, watch it instead. But also, before you listen to us talk about this, like, please, you know, enjoy the original content for all of its beauty and interesting. Yeah, and think about it. <laughs> you know, the music, the lyrics, the video, it's all great. You're going to enjoy that before this ruins your life. All right. Without further ado, Nicole Arbor, This Is America, Women's Edit. (laughs) Just the initial part, the yeah, 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 um, go away is actually um, rooted in African-American history and culture. Um, It's supposed to be a choir um, singing, representing, um, you know, like the history of black pain and the history of black uh, reliance on music and art and choir and the multiplicities to sort of represent African-American history. So just from the basis, um, taking it and making it white women's voices, is just like really fucked up. Wow, I had no <laughs> idea about that because I've seen them in the music video where he has a black choir and like I saw that visually, but... Yeah, now I understand the connection a little more, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of influences on the music and on the dance that, like, if you really wanted to try a different version of this, you would have to just write a new song. You can't <laughs> right. use the same music. It's impossible. Yeah. All right. Let's see how it goes. Oh, yeah. We just want to be pretty. Ready to go. We just want to Get a mammy home. Okay, oh, I'm just going to stop that because she just said, like, something about we need to, like, get a mammy ho or something, which, like, the fucking audacity to start out your lyrics that way. Like, Hugh, you should speak on this better than I can. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a mammy is a figure in African-American history that has an extremely racist legacy as being someone who takes care of white women's children. Um, and so the fact that no matter how fucking revolutionary she thinks she's being by drawing attention to that figure... Um, making black people fungible, the first lyric of your song, in order to incorporate this idea of, like, you know, we need a mammy is just, like, disgusting. And the first woman in the video is a black woman, right? Sitting in the chair. Right. It's, like, what she thinks of as the mammy figure, like, doing nursing. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is disgusting. And what what is also gross about it is that she's only mentioning, like, the mammy figure to say that it's violent, that she feels like she needs to get someone else to do her labor, not that, like, there are problematic, like, 
racialized forms of violence within that, which is so tone deaf. <laughs> yeah, she's so oppressed by having to go and find people of another race to take care of her children mm-hmm. for her. Wild. I, Absolutely wild. <laughs> is that the argument? I believe so. All right. She's saying, like, we want to be, we just want to be pretty, pretty, that's the goal. We just want to smile, get a mammy at home. The initial lyrics are, we just want to party, party is for you. We just want the money. Money is for you. I know you want to party. Party just for free. Girl, you got me dancing. It goes on. But, like, the meaning of the song, right? Like, this bridge by Childish Gambino and Young Thug is supposed to be about, ultimately, like, black experience as a whole and the way that violence and, like, the way that dance and movement has been representative and indicative of a lot of possibilities of black freedom and agency, um, and the way that the like entertainment value of black people or the violence against black people. So either we have black rappers or black dancers or black singers. Right. And then on the other hand, we have black people dying from police brutality that these, um, that these things are inter- interchangeable. So the fact that she initially starts out and equates that experience to, um, we just want to be pretty, pretty. That's the goal. We just want to smile, get a mammy at home is just like literally so disgusting, right? Like she's talking about the pressures put on white women to be pretty um, and to like have black women take care of their children, how oppressive that must be. Um, And like, woe is her. Um, She could go fuck herself. Yeah, world's tiniest violin for Nicole Arbor. (laughs) Again. (laughs) (laughs) And using black women as a vehicle for your oppression like how hard it must be like to be told that you need a mammy is just like what the fuck <laughs> yep <laughs> do do we want to watch more of this sample from i mean later there, there, there's plenty of there's plenty more to discuss here i'll just keep going this is america don't catch you climbing up don't catch you climbing up Oh, don't catch you climbing up. Just want to point out that my neoliberalism hackles are raised by the fact that she's claiming she's oppressed because people don't want her to succeed. That's actually not the narrative that many white women are fed. It's actually that you can be a super mom and have it all and uh, that you need to be productive to secure your place in like what capitalist femininity needs to be. That's my piece to say on it. Yeah, the lyrics that stand out to me from this Look at how I'm spitting truth out. I'm so trendy. I wear Fendi. I'm so sexy. I'm a get it. Watch me move. These my titties. That's my tool. Um, I'm not even sure what fucking lyrics she's talking about in this one. I think she's trying to like do the thing where she appropriates like sex worker discourse that's actually powerful. Yeah, yeah. Power- okay, so look how I'm geeking out. I'm so fitted. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. I'm going to get it. A, watch me make a move, right? So this is like... Um, you know, Childish Gambino and uh, Quavo talking about, um, oh, this is actually really aligned with my research, but talking about like this desire for materiality. And I think that, you know, ultimately black women have bared brunt the responsibility of materialism um, as a means of social control. So when you can't control anything about life, right, and the only way to you know, showing your home is a way of addressing or making clear that you have agency and subjectivity, right? The items that you have in your house. There were times that even a teacup on a dresser 
could represent being part of a black middle class, right? That just alluding that you had some uh, resonance with white America in terms of the ability to afford and to access certain items that had previously not been accessible to you. Um, that is a way that black people have historically expressed agency through kind of taking up fashion and taking up clothes as a means of personal expression. So the idea that her, like this white bitch wearing Fendi, is the same thing as like black people desiring um, material items like Gucci and, and certain brands, right? What Childish Gambino is talking about is talking about how black people have come to desire, right, things that keep them structured in a world of anti-blackness, right, come to desire material possessions um, and become so invested in the social realm that they ignore what's really going on. Um, and that that's not, not the case for this white woman, right? Like, bitch, you, Fenty was made for you. Like, this does not make any sense. Not Fenty. Um, and so this bitch just was, like, not making any sense again. It's pretty painful to watch because I think even from any, like, white female feminist perspective, if they completely weren't thinking about the obvious racial uh, problem with the appropriation of the original video, it's still not even a good feminist analysis. Like, this idea, this is where all of the struggle is, is really just personalized to her. She's just talking about her own life and her own perspective, and that's not particularly helpful if you're going to be, like, women's edit. I, you know, I don't want to, like, be too critical of her own experiences. I'm sure there's some, you know, struggle in there somewhere, but she's obviously terrible. I don't. And she's just messing I'm fucking everything. by a river. Like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I did not care about her personal experience. I'm like, honestly, like if, if the woes of her life is that people tell her she needs Fendi and to be pretty, um, then like go fuck yourself. Like you have no, you have not done an intersectional analysis. Like I want an Afro pessimist, like a pro, like I want an Afro pessimist, like understanding America's structurally anti-black sort of response. But even if you can't do that, at least give an intersectionally, uh, you know, appropriate analysis. Like, yes. she can't say that this video stands for black women because these are not the experiences that black women are, like, these are not the woes of black women. These are the woes of white women. And she uses black women's bodies as a prop throughout the video mm -hmm. to make it seem as if her video calls to attention uh, a more um, intersectional and grounded feminism. And that just proves, again, using black women's bodies as props to make it so that her video is, you know, accepted. And so, like, I honestly think she can go fuck herself. And um, and I also think that, like, some of these lyrics, Kanye West, all falls down. This idea of black people and materialism is something that's, like, extremely important to black people, right? So, like, even if you drive the Benz, you're still a nigga in a coupe. Um, the whole point is that, you know, no matter how much material possessions you have, no, how, no matter how much you make it in society financially, you're still, Oprah still gets called the fucking N-word, right? Like, ultimately, no matter how much money you make in American society, you're still going to be subjugated to racial oppression um, and anti-blackness. Her dance itself, right, like the video, her mimicking African-American dance and hip-hop um, and, like, making a mockery of it, to be completely honest. She's a terrible dancer. Um, but more significantly, uh, the idea that she's dancing like a black person, right, 
Um, whatever that means, I don't actually believe that that's a thing. But the idea that she is appropriating those things and making herself closer to blackness by doing hip hop dancing um, while simultaneously, right, it's all about women. Why the fuck aren't you doing like, I don't know, what, what, like, do the hokey pokey. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, why are you dancing <laughs> the ways that black people have traditionally um, been manifested as dancing, but claiming it's about women and only women and not centering the experiences of black women. Yeah, I don't want this video representing anyone other than Nicole Arbor because it's clearly claiming to represent way more than herself. I feel personally offended as a white person by this representation of white people as a generalization. I'm just like, ah, this is so terrible just like try a little harder to do something that's at least artistically interesting in some way but instead all you do is make everything that was good worse right though the video itself is childish gambino dancing in front to kind of represent the way that racism overwhelms our like basically like people aren't concerned with systematic racism they're more interested in entertainment and new dance moves that black people come up with and the way that black bodies have been pathologized and so and he's singing different lyrics right he's singing about structural racism or rapping about structural racism and the oppression that black people experience so the fact that she's talking about her fucking titties being like the thing that distracts like white men i guess uh, or, like, men more broadly. I'm sure she has a larger critique of black men that I would love to hear as well. Um, but I think that just the notion that, you know, her titties are the thing that distracts men from her, you know, personality, like, there's a there's a possibility for some actual analysis to be done there about the way that women's bodies are commodified and tokenized um, in order to not listen to their voices. But, again, she would have had to understand the meaning of the actual song in order to make that level of analysis. And so when she talks about something like her titties getting in the way, um, it's like that's not the fucking problem. Like, the problem is structural and um, imbued into what the expectations that we have upon black bodies to perform and exist in a certain way. And the, that way oftentimes focuses on things like material possessions and, like, rappers, like, childish gambino or you know drake or other things that black people are here to perform for you and here to make something for you um and that, that those things overwhelm the focus away from something like the shooting that the whole fucking video is a tribute to so um you know honestly if this had been a hot white feminist take i would have like had more in-depth analysis but the lyrics are so bad and like she does not understand like she needs to take like I don't even know what is it called in high school, like a high school English class um, to learn how to read. <laughs> no, that's why I thought that this would be a perfect episode is because it's a perfect vehicle for like Afro pessimism 101 because she's proving the thesis of Afro pessimism by what she's trying to do. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, ultimately, I think this is a great introduction to Afro pessimism, which I would love to come and talk about later. But um, Afro-pessimism at its core is sort of arguing that there's a difference between racism and anti-blackness, right? That racism is a social construct that is established um, at, due to multivariant factors, imperialism, capitalism, colonialism, a bunch of other things, um, and a myriad of other things, sexism, right? And anti-blackness is sort of arguing that there is an ontological difference or a structural antagonism between black people and the rest of the world. And what that means is that black people are, are, you know, sort of 
experience not only it's called something called objective subjective vertigo which basically means um they don't just experience racism due to a prior offense or an event that happened but it's the structuring nature of america right so there's no way to reverse it there's no way to come back from it because america is fundamentally constituted upon anti-black violence and when other groups appropriate um the terms of resistance of black people right when white women take up black protest and take make black protest fungible for their own desires it only further proves that blackness is a vehicle for their expression right it, it taking black things and making it white um does not uh, does nothing for black people it it further entrenches and uses blackness as an object for their own expression so when you take a hip-hop song about black people and make it about white women you are quite literally make black, making black bodies history, black life fungible for your freedom. And, and that's a real problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great example. And I think that scholars of Afro-pessimism would have a lot to say about like white uh, Etsy shop owners that profiteer off of Black Lives Matter merchandise and like a litany of other examples where we see corporations leeching off of the work that black people are actually doing to seem cool or more credible in this moment. And so this is all at play here when we talk about Nicole Arbor and how she's trying to leech off of Childish Gambino's actual cultural work to try to be relevant relevant again because it's not cool to shame fat people anymore yeah and and, it, and you know ultimately that's the problem with this shit is she's getting so much attention like i'm reading lyrics that could have been written by my like five-year-old brother and trying to give a literary analysis and it's like that's fucking ridiculous because she didn't think that much through and again it's like you know she is getting the attention she wants you know what do they say all publicity is good publicity um and so it's like for white people when they do something negative you know i was thinking about it earlier i was thinking about my ex-boyfriend and like the conversation we were having about that um and i just kind of think that like at the end of the day right like at what point is my word valid enough to you know this is kind of off topic but i just something that i've been ruminating on i just think that like the idea that like you know when is your voice enough right like why is it that we need an apology and we need recognition? She should apologize, do the work, right? But there should be a way to publicly say, I fucked up. That's not reclaiming yourself and your identity as a means to, like, make more money. Um, and I think that there's zero accountability structure in the way that America is currently structured because it's profitable, right? All publicity is good publicity. Chris Harrison is even more famous now because he's now a, an expression of white supremacy, um, and, like, there's a bunch of white supremacists who literally comment on Rachel Lindsay's photos and everyone else's photos, like, fuck you, you're the problem, you're the one who got Chris Harrison fired, and, like, ultimately, you know, I don't need a, a response from my ex-boyfriend about soft day Saturday, like, that one goes in the books, it's something you did, buddy, um, I don't actually need the apology and you reclaiming yourself and your identity, um, and so, you know, it becomes a question of, like, public apologies, like, yes, something does need to be addressed and said, but at the same time, addressing and saying it needs to come with genuine and true consequences and accountability, um, not criminalization, right, but accountability. And I think that that's something that's missing from this, this bitch because she's not even, she hasn't even really given an apology. She's defended it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is a great bridge to talk about this, because obviously when she puts out the video in 2018, everybody with eyes and, like, uh, greater than 
second grade understanding of like the ways that race and like gender interact is like what did I just witness and she gets huge amounts of backlash so she doesn't post like an apology video or anything like that she actually we only have a public comment for her because she gets confronted by a TMZ reporter and so I'm going to play for you now uh, her apology how do you address allegations that you're whitewashing this culturally significant piece ah that was (laughs) okay first of all (laughs) 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 so quirky (laughs) oh oh, man she's she's really doing the instagram influencer moment there like oh i'm so misunderstood and i'm just gonna express that on a guttural level and so everyone will believe how genuine i am yeah i'm so likable yeah you're not likable (laughs) ah that was by no means what I wanted to do at all, but it's kind of cool because uh, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of people over the last few days and really understand the cultural significance of that video and that song and what it meant for the culture. And now that I understand it, my timing was so off. I totally get that now. Oh yeah, your timing was off. That's the only problem people have about this. Yeah, the problem isn't your personality. It's not the simplistic lyrics. It's not the racism that's embedded in almost every single second of what we watched the problem is just the timing you should have released it later when people had sort of like let it calm down and and we've all just forgotten that these like problems are real and that the video had significance so then we can just do whatever we want Uh, she's like yeah uh not enough black people had done the work of explaining to me how to do this video yet so the timing was wrong sorry about that He releases a message about the This Is America Women's Edit from what I'm reading. And she says that it was a tongue-in-cheek way to give additional glory to what I believe is the most impactful piece of art in recent years. Due to the sensitive nature of the original, I do understand I, I understand why some people are wrongly portraying this as white versus black. So she's again saying that the video um, is broadly a piece of art about America. And so anyone who wants to take their, their poke at this video that is about it is about anti-black violence it's not about white versus black um it is about anti-black violence and ultimately the fact that she's making like i don't know how to clarify this but the fact that she's making the argument that black people are the ones making it a white versus black issue right um and that we're the reason why her video is you know being portrayed as polemic is bullshit and further shows that she has zero understanding of the way that the racial structure of America works. Um, And the fact that, you know, she thinks that, you know, you can take something black and make it white and then say that it's our fault for saying that you took something and whitewashed it, right? That's that's problematic. Yeah, she thinks that because she labeled it women's edit and because it included black women in the video and that she was trying to engage it from like a universal women's perspective that that excuses any possible mistakes she could have made along the way right and i think that you know she ends her statement with saying that people need to create their own version of this video right that more people should actually take up black things and make them whatever they want to. And again, that's that false ruism analogy, the assumption that you can take someone's experience and make it um, relay for someone else um, is not equitable in a society that's structured in a way that's anti-black, right? You can't just take some form of the black experience and plop it on another group of people and assume that those things, that those ratios come one to one. 
Um, and so ultimately, I think that that is the problem. And she says, through this honesty, I believe we can discover a new level of empathy and understanding for each other. And again, I'd like to insert someone like Sadia Hartman in, um, you know, um, uh, scenes of subjection, where she talks about um, Rankin and his assumption that there's a possibility for empathy between black and white people. And this video is kind of highlights the argument that Sadia Hartman makes, which is that ultimately black bodies are used as a vehicle for white expression and empathy is really an empathy for white power, right? That like ultimately um, white people can only imagine bad shit when they see it happening to them, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to make a women's edit to make it relatable to white women. Huh. White women wouldn't just say, I'm, I'm, you know, I am also implicated by a structure of anti-blackness, right? Because that would be too much for them. They have to say, um, in order to have empathy, everyone needs to take the black experience and make it their own. Um, so we need to imagine it happening to a white person for it to matter instead of it just mattering because it's happening to black people and the shit that happens to black people structures the shit that you think is bad that happens to you. Like there doesn't need to be a women's edit. This is America is talking about um, the violence of America and the, the violence that structures anti-blackness. And that is the violence that structures white women. And until they see that, until they see, um, you know, this is like an all lives matter interpretation of violence. Like, um, you know, until you realize that no lives matter until black lives matter, you're kind of missing out on the point. Yeah, I didn't really think of the connection with all lives matter because the way that I understand it is that she thinks imitation is the highest form of flattery or, you know, some sentiment like that that oversimplifies a million different ways that art interacts with one another. <laughs> when someone does something where they are taking original piece and turning it into something new for themselves, there is a possibility for a lot of interesting things to happen there. And she's just assuming that that has to be a good thing, just the proliferation of perspectives, because all lives matter. Like, that's, that's her argument. Yeah, it is. At the core of her argument is ultimately that, you know, um, everyone's experience matters. And, like, I do believe that in a broad sense, but I think that some people's experience are for afforded more opportunities than others. So when someone does call light to an experience that um, is not um, prevalent, right? Like I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, ultimately it would be like Trump producing a video that was like about um, like Rogaine and hair loss. Like ultimately <laughs> like these things, like, yeah, you, I, I respect that you have experience of like getting bullied about your hair, but you're a terrible fucking human. And like the fact that you think that like taking something that like, and I say Rogaine because it was tested on black men, like taking something that like has ultimately has its history and in, in, in its experiences and medical testing and populations different than yourself. And then saying like, Oh my God, I'm so woe is me. I'm so oppressed. is just like fucking ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for breaking all of that down for us. And um, I want to wrap up our discussion soon, but there is one question left that I want to ask you. I want to turn back to our uh, little conversation before about the ways that the Afro-pessimist critique and the anti-capitalist critique uh, interact. And my question for you is, uh, can the AF exist in the world of the alt? By which I mean, uh, <laughs> can these critiques coexist with one another? And how do you view that? Um. There was a really great piece. Um, it's by Dr. Sabine Broek, um, who teaches um, American Studies, Gender, 
and Transatlantic Di- Black Diaspora Studies at the University of Bremen, and it's called Inequality or Social Death. Um, it's in Rhizomes Issue 29. Um, and the reason why I like that piece is basically she talks about health care and the way that health care t- gets taken up in terms of income inequality, right, that everyone is affected by income inequality, and that's why it should be the thing that we circulate around. And I think that that produces this concept of liberal humanism and it creates this idea of a we, right? And it forces black people to use um, white terms to script their violence, even though those things aren't, um, that they're disparately implicated and that addressing income inequality wouldn't address something like racist doctors or um, lack of access to certain health care or uh, I mean it would frame it as an issue of resource discrepancies rather than one of anti-blackness right so when black people say that they experience negative health care um, uh, white people say you know circulate around single payer like everyone talk about single payer and talk about income inequality and I think that there is a whitewashing of black demands um, that and that white people use those things to create liberal humanism in which we're all equally implicated so that they can reap the benefits and then ditch it when um, they get what they need, which is resources. And so I think that framing things through sort of an anti-capitalist lens can oftentimes come at the cost of explaining or structural analysis of anti-blackness. You know, there's people who would push back against that, but the Afro-pessimist sort of interpretation is just it's not that capitalism isn't uh, one of the major, you know, mechanisms through which anti-blackness is displaced, but that the grammar of politics that we utilize is extremely important. So the grammar of anti-capitalist movements sort of assumes that the worker is, like, subjugated and that that is a root cause of violence. And so Wilderson sort of breaks down, well, what about the slave, right, who's neither a worker nor a, nor a human, so the terms of subjectivity and of civil society necessary in order to mobilize that level of, um, in order to mobilize sort of the end of America and an end to anti-blackness are not, um, it's not one-to-one with saying anti-capitalism. So ultimately sort of the desire to claim that capitalism is the root cause of certain violence, again, doesn't explain why racial disparities like Oprah gets called the N-word. It doesn't explain why, you know, why not use European um, indentured servants instead of uh, African Amer- Africans at the time, um, even though it costed more money? Why did, you know, slave owners purposefully torture and murder slaves? Um, why was there such gratuitous violence? Why stab someone after they're already dead? Um, those things cannot be explained through sort of an anti-capitalist analysis. And it doesn't explain why Miley Cyrus likes to twerk on black women, right? Like there's something profitable about black, the domination of black life. So there would obviously, you know, an Afro-pessimist wouldn't say ignore capitalism or that capitalism is not an important um, way of understanding violence, but rather that it is a methodology of anti-blackness, right? And at the forefront, anti-blackness is sort of what structures America and that forcing black people to utilize the terms of labor um, trades off with, you know, demands for black life. Yeah, I see this sort of uh, logic, not really logic, but narrative on the left of like resistance to uh, what they call identity politics or id poll. That's a red flag for me. If someone uses the term id poll, it means uh, they are not to be taken seriously. 
(laughs) (laughs) And so, like, I want to be very explicit that on this podcast, a structural analysis that forefronts anti-blackness is vitally important and must not be left behind in our efforts. So thank you so much, Q, for coming on today and sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks. I hope we get to talk to you again about this, because I am still in a position where I feel like I'm only understanding it in in a sort of introductory capacity and i just have a lot more to work through well actually q correct me if i'm wrong but i think that after this hour or so we've spent together garrett intuitively understands the afro pessimist critique better than 90 percent of ndt policy first rounds yeah i'd say that's probably the case you know um it comes with an open understanding and an open openness instead of a competitive incentive to win and um, and, it, and it comes from an understanding anti-blackness is something other than race, which I think that, you know, a lot of people on the leftist critique who call it identity politics have refused to understand. And, you know, I don't even want to trade um, out my identity politics friends, you know, black feminists and other people who do reclaim the identity of, you know, identity politics because identity politics and experience. You know, if I were to believe that America could be, you know, a class analysis or a cla- uh, or you know whatever class consciousness could, you know, ultimately translate into some counter hegemonic politics capable of reducing racism, I would still need to address racism and racism as the root cause of class. You know, there was a difference between there's a difference between a white middle class person and a black middle class person and what those things mean. So any analysis of class that does not involve one of race, I think, you know, from a black feminist perspective, which my work also addresses, would be, you know, pretty banal. Um, Anyways, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it so much and um, lots more to say. So I hope to come back on the show soon. Yeah, I cannot wait to dismantle these systems uh, with you. But first, we got to plan the bachelorette party. So I'll be in touch with you about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye, Sarah. Have a good one. Thanks, Jim.